will be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed if you're new with us. We are working through 1 Peter, which is a letter, an epistle written by the ancient missionary and apostle extraordinaire Peter, as he was writing to a group of Christians that had been scattered uh, from their homes because of persecution of various kinds. And they are struggling in a variety of ways, and he is seeking to shepherd and pester and encourage them from afar. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, some 2,000 years later, he is doing similarly for us today. So let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us today. We ask that we be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our mind, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, the first thing I want to call your attention to here is the nature of the passage itself. In many ways, it is the gateway or the threshold to the house that is the rest of this letter. If you look at verses 11 and 12, it is a shift, it is a hinge point from the primarily theological nature of the first part of the book. There was some application along the way, but it was primarily a lot of theological ideas. And now he is transitioning into very practical Based on what I've taught you up to this point, now go do this in light of what we have learned. In some ways, it might be a little bit of an oversimplification, but not much. It could be said that 2.11, which is where we start today, through 5.11 is specific application of 1.1 through 2.10. And I love the way that he begins this part of the passage. Take a look at it with me. It begins with the word beloved. Beloved. That's such a great word, isn't it? Now, we don't traffic in it very much today. It might sound a little archaic to us. But break it down. What is it that he's saying? He's saying, I want you to be loved when you hear this. Be reminded of the fact that you are loved by God, that you are loved by me as I write this to you. And it is out of that fertile soil of love that he begins to plead with them about two particular things. And then, of course, that which will follow. Look at the next part of the verse. He says, I urge you. So, beloved, I urge you. And if Peter was here today with us, you could hear the angst in his voice, you could hear the groan of emotion, that's what the Greek indicates here, that he is longing for them to do something. And what is the something that he's longing for them to do? He tells us. He says, as sojourners and exiles, so he gives them kind of a category of understanding, we'll dig into there in a moment, but let's get to this verbal phrase here, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. So the first point, we'll have only two today, but the first one is from this idea of him calling them sojourners and exiles. And that first point is that our new identity gives way to new activity. Our new identity gives way to new Activity. Now, these two words that he uses here, sojourners and exiles, they go all the way back to Abraham. It's talked about in Genesis 23, also Psalm 39, 
and then also in Hebrews 13, and also in this book. So when he is talking about these ideas, he's talking about somebody, a group of somebodies that are in a place <clears throat> that is not ultimately their home, that they are from somewhere else, but they are stationed in this area for at least a short period of time, and they are away from their home country. And of course, what he's getting at here is he's talking about the Christian identity that we are ultimately out of this world. Now, I don't say that in a, a, the true sense, but you get what I'm saying, that our true citizenship is in heaven, just like the Bible teaches, and that the time that we spend here, we are truly just passing through, and we are going to our ultimate destination, which is heaven. But this concept of identity before activity, it's extremely important. It's very important for us to understand as Christians. It's very important for us to understand as we want to grow in our sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, that God doesn't just say to us, hey, I want you to go do these things and don't do these things. He does that. He does that in this very passage. But he does so out of the identity of who we are in Christ. As sojourners, as those who were stationed here for just a while on our way to somewhere else, and as exiles, those who are not in our homeland. And listen, when we get this right, it affects everything. Let's apply it in just a couple of spheres here. Let's think about the fundamental identity that we have as sojourners and exiles and also saints when it comes to a particular struggle with sin. Now, when we are born again, we one day will be in a place when we experience glorification where we don't sin anymore, and we are progressively being sanctified between now and then. So we're, we're growing out of our sins, growing away from them. We hope that that becomes less and less, though we'll never be perfect till we get to glory. But understanding the funnel, fundamental identity of who we are as sojourners and exiles and saints is really important when we stumble in sin because we understand ourselves to be saints who sin, not simply just worthless sinners. And that is an important understanding because we're not interested in building up our self-esteem. We're inter interested in building up Christ's esteem and also understanding how he looks at us, that we are worth something to him. And if we're worth something to Jesus, well, goodness, that changes the way we live. That changes the way we deal with our struggles. And we look at them and we say, Lord, I hate this. This is horrible. Forgive me. But Lord, clearly you're not done with me. You, through your Holy Spirit, through your word, through the preaching of the word, you brought this particular sin to light, whatever it is. And clearly you want me to grow out of it. You want me to mature. You want me to change. Lord, help me lean into you, lean into the power of the scriptures, lean into the power of the Spirit, and by grace be transformed to live out more and more of who I am in Christ. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I'm a saint who sins, not simply just a worthless sinner. So how we see ourselves, this understanding that a new identity leads to a new activity, it's very, very important. But it's not just important in how we view ourselves, it's also important in how we approach money, for example. 
I've told you this many times. The most exciting check I write every month is the check to invest in our church, to invest in the propagation of the gospel, because I know that investment is going to last forever. It's going to make a difference forever. And then as the rest of our budget gets built and we go through spending, paying our bills like everybody else does, I see myself as a steward, as a manager, as someone who God has entrusted uh, money like he has to all the rest of us for a certain period of time. And because I know this world is not ultimately my home and because I'm not in my ultimate homeland, that affects how we spend, how we save, how we invest, the things we say yes to, the things that we pass on. And all of that financial identity flows from, or financial activity flows from gospel identity. That how we approach those funds, they are influenced by who we are in Christ. The same is true in parenting. That when we look at our children, we see them as entrusted to us by God to be in our home for a short season. We want to invest in them as best we can, prepare them for life as best we can. But at the end of the day, we know that ultimately God is going to call them to to do various things, and, and, and we want to handle that as a sacred trust. But in this and all these areas, this as eternal beings, and this is true not just for the Neelys, this is true for everybody, this is the shortest leg of our journey, that we will be on earth for an undisclosed amount of time, but we will spend eternity somewhere. And so that's why it's so important for us to put our faith and trust in Jesus, to stop trying to save ourselves, to trust in Christ alone for salvation, because we want that eternity to be in heaven with God forever. That's what we want. And while we're here, though it be for a very short time compared to this, this is a dot, eternity is a line, we want to make the most of it. And we want to make the most of it understanding who we are in Christ, understanding that we are sojourners, understanding that we are exiles, that we are on our way somewhere, and we want to be faithful and fruitful with the time that we have. So let me ask you an application question here. Thinking about that, how often does that concept of your identity in Christ roll around in your mind during the week? That the truest thing about you is who you are in Jesus. It's not where you live. It's not where you work. It's not the brand labels on your clothes or on your car. It's who you are in Christ. And that new identity, that's what leads to the new activity. That you do those things because of who you now are. When's the last time you stopped and thought about that? How can that particular truth encourage you in this week, in your trials and in your triumphs? However the Lord would use it, let's be sensitive and listen to what he has for us in that area. Now, when Peter digs into applying this a bit more, he talks about this in two different ways, that there are some things that we need to avoid because of our new identity but also we need to do some things because of our identity. I kind of gave you three general categories. Peter gets very specific about what he is asking them and us to do. Let's take a look at it. The first thing is 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, this word abstain means to keep away from, to avoid. And when he talks about the passions of the flesh, what is it that he's referring to specifically? Well, good Bible study will tell you that when a writer uses a word, <laughs> you need to see how else he uses it in this particular book. And you can look back to chapter 1, verse 14, and then also look forward to chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 2 and 3. And then uh, the, the, the first reference there, we've seen this already. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, and he talks about those things as malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and so on. So there's a certain set of behaviors that are off limits for Christians. And then when he gets into this again in chapter 4, it's the same kind of thing. Live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's talking about unbelievers there. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So again, there is a list of behaviors that don't need to be a part of our present because they are part of our past. That's what we used to be about. This is what we're now about. Those are practices, those are sins that are consistent with the old people we used to be. And now we are new people with a new identity and new activity. So we need to stay away from those kinds of behaviors. And listen, the way we need to understand this, <clears throat> obviously it begins with our identity. We already talked about that. But we also need to see the character of God in view here. I just quoted this to you from chapter 1. But we are to be holy because God is holy. God is our people. We, God, is, God is our Father. We are His people. And so we need to take on His character. We need to take on His characteristics. And we also need to hear His heart in this. If God is telling us not to be a part of something, there is good reason for it. And for any of us who've ever been a part of any of these things that are described here, lawless idolatry, drinking parties, drunkenness, those things all end in destruction. And so we need to see God as a good father that is giving us good direction from our identity, from his character, guardrails for living. And if he says stay away from it, man, we need to stay away from it. And we need to trust that he is good. So let me ask you this question. When you hear that, Maybe your thing, your sin, your struggle was listed in this list, but maybe it wasn't. But something is. Maybe several somethings are. What specifically right now is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind, saying to you, listen, I want you to abstain from these passions of the flesh. I want you to walk away from whatever it is you've gotten yourself into. And that can be all kinds of things, friends. It can be pornography. It can be coveting the life of someone else. It could be into the bad habit of just being sharp and, and, and difficult to live with. There's a thousand things that could be on this list, but that's not who you are. That's not who God is. That's not what he wants for you. So as the Holy Spirit brings this to, to, to front and center in your life, in this text, may it be like this. May it be like an antidote that has been given to you for the snake bite of sin.
And may the Holy Spirit be using the word right now to draw that to the surface and to dispense with it through the healing power of God's word. Now, let me encourage you as you listen to what the Spirit is saying to you to also get really practical about how you need to walk in a better direction this week. If you're in some kind of ensnaring sin, odds are you're not going to be able to untangle it alone and you're not going to be able to stay away from it alone. There's some reason why it became a habit for you. There's some reason why you keep going back to it. And my strong encouragement to you would be don't try to walk that path alone. Reach out to one of us as your pastors. Let us help you. We don't want to judge you. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. Reach out to somebody in your community group. (laughs) Reach out to somebody in your Thrive group, in your Bible study group. And let's see what only God can do in helping us be who we truly are. To let this new identity give way to this new activity that we would abstain from these passions of the flesh for the glory of God and for the good of the world. And let's do that together. Now, the final thing that I would say to us here is notice how dangerous this actually is. Look back in your passage. It says here, these passions which war against your soul. Now, you might expect Peter to say they war against your body. Now, that's certainly true. But what he's doing here is he's drawing a connection to say, listen, these sins, they don't just affect us at a visceral level. They affect us at the spiritual level, that they war against our soul. And the the Greek language here literally indicates they are serving as soldiers. Some even go so far as to say in an organized capacity to war against our souls. Think about that, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are strategic. They exploit our weaknesses. They come at us in things that tempt us sometimes uniquely. They also come after our families in ways that we we might be weaker for various reasons. And they align against what God is trying to do in our lives in making us like Christ. So it makes sense even more now why God would not not want us to be a part of these things. They're not part of our new identity. They're not in line with his character. And they are incredibly destructive. And God wants his people to move forward. He wants them to expand his fame, to to spread his name among the nations. And obviously the enemy hates all of that. He wars against all of that. So any way that he can get his claws into us, any way that he can militarily uh, exploit our weaknesses and work against us, he is going to do that as best he can to try to hold back and prevent what God is doing. So we need the help of the Spirit, the help of the Scriptures, the help of the church, the help of our additional community, and we need to live in line with this new identity and follow away from these worldly passions. So let me ask you again. How is the Spirit putting this in your life right now? What specifically is he calling out right now? And who do you need to call to get you the help you need to walk in more victory this week than you did last week in that particular area?
So friends, let's listen and see what only God can do in this area. So that's the first part. Now let's take a look at verse 12. And here he moves from the, hey, don't do this, to instead do this. And just as a little sidetrack here, that's very important to understand, particularly if you have uh, students or smaller children that you were teaching in your life. We don't ever want young people or even older people to think that the Bible is simply a list of do's and don'ts. It's not. It's one big story that all points to Christ, and it does give some very practical instruction at times of things to avoid and things to engage. <clears throat> but even in that, notice that. God doesn't say, hey, just keep away from this. He says, no, replace it with this. Do this instead. I don't want you to do that, but I do want you to do this. And again, it shows the heart and the character and the kindness of God. Look with me at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let me give you the second point here. And it is that how we live before unbelievers matters. How we live before unbelievers matters. Let's break it down here. When he says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, he's not just saying, hey, I'm writing to a bunch of Jewish Christians because he wasn't. It's debated about exactly who his audience was here, but it was probably maybe mostly Gentiles with some Jews mixed in. Definitely it was a mixed audience. And so when he uses this language here about Gentiles, he's talking about people who don't follow Jesus. He's speaking in a way that the other New Testament writers did about this group of people. And when he uses this word here about honorable, he's talking about living in such a way that is lovely, winsome, gracious, noble, and excellent. It's the highest form of goodness. And he's saying, I want you to live in such a way that when they say negative and horrible things against you, which are untrue, they would be proven untrue by your good works. <clears throat> now, when he talks about this here, the concept of good works, uh, if you grew up in a church like Refuge, or at least from the, the, the Protestant side <laughs> of things, uh, good works are often, they get a bad rap. And I understand why. Because we want to emphasize that we are not saved by our works. The Bible is replete with evidence that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And sometimes when people start talking about good works, <coughs> they start talking about, well, this is how we make ourselves right before God. Of course, that's not true. But good works are good. You just need to put them in the right place in the spiritual equation. In fact, the New Testament is also replete with evidence of how good the good works are. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Another one, Titus 2.7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And the list goes on and on. So these good works would be the things that you would think about. They would be praying. They would be fasting. They would be reading your Bible. They would be talking to others about Jesus, serving inside the church, serving beyond the church. All of these things are good works <coughs> that glorify God and bring good to the world around us. 
And so he's saying, listen, we need to obey about those things. We need to practice those things so that when <coughs> unbelievers accuse, they would not be able to have a leg to stand on, so to speak. Now, what are some of the things that Christians would have been accused of at this time? Well, believe it or not, it was actually quite a lot. Uh, early Christians were accused of a disloyalty to the state. John 19 records that. Upsetting trade or divination, that's Acts 16. Teaching that slaves are free, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, not participating in festivals, that's Colossians 2. And atheists, uh, uh, see Acts 15 for that example. So they could have been in trouble for all kinds of things. Now, of course, God's law, always more important than man's law, but what Peter is getting at here is he's saying, listen, for as much as you are able, live uprightly, keep your conduct honorable before these unbelieving Gentiles so that when they see your good works, when they see you caring for the poor, when they see you caring for orphans and widows and <clears throat> doing all the things that God wants us to do, that they would look back and they would say, wait a minute, these people that were accusing of these things, but look at this. And there's a, a logical disconnect there. And this phrase here about <clears throat> glorifying God on the day of visitation, clearly that is taken from Jesus in Matthew 5.16 as he is talking about uh, how we are to live in such a way that we glorify God. And when other people see the good works, uh, that they would glorify God as well. <clears throat> and so there's a continuity between what Jesus was saying what Peter is saying, and certainly what we are saying together today as well. So let me ask this question of you. What good works do you need to be about? Now, some of this is patently obvious, and they're the same for all of us. We need to pray. We need to study. We need to be a part of Christian community. We just need to serve in our church. And I'm assuming most of you who are watching this, you're part of this community here at Refuge. We need to serve there's some wonderful opportunities that we have even now in this pandemic season. The, uh, the, the setup team needs some additional help during this time. It's a great way to do some good works that the scripture is talking about here. But then beyond that, out in our communities, in our workplace, before unbelievers, what are the good works that God is calling us to do? Um, <clears throat> how can we be people in the neighborhood that people go to when they have problems? How can we be people in the office that people approach and say, hey, I don't even know if I believe what you do, but you seem to be a person who prays. Can you pray for this in my life? What are those kinds of things that God can lead us to be about so that unbelievers, when they see us, they get a good representation of the gospel and hopefully glorify God? That's what we want. So <clears throat> let's wrap all this up. Where does it all come together? Well, clearly it all comes together in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who did the best work ever that could be done, his perfect life, his substitute's death, his glorious resurrection, offering salvation to us. We want to go to him. We want to glorify him. We want to trust him. And we want to partner with him as he changes the world through people like us. So friend, where do you most need his help today? Where do you need his help in regard to what we talked about in the first half in abstaining from certain worldly pleasures that are off limits for us? And where do you need his help in identifying and activating those good works 
that we need to be about. Let's go before the Lord now and pray about those very things together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the good community that you've placed us in. Lord, write this word on our hearts and help us see what only you can do in our lives and help us to be the kind of people that you have made us and called us to be. In Jesus' good name, amen.